I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Guys, we are kicking off season five of the Purple Patch podcast today, and we have got a storming episode in line for you. But there is a way that you can kick off your journey of performance over the course of 2023. And the best way to do that is have a little look inside. Yes, by assessing your biometrics and combining it with the recommendations and insights from the team of experts at Inside Tracker, you will get precise focus on the elements that you should work on so that you can yield optimal returns on all of the effort that you put in. We leverage it with all of our athletes at Purple Patch, and you can too. All you need to do is head to InsideTracker.com slash Purple Patch. That's InsideTracker.com slash Purple Patch, and you're going to find everything that you need so that you can take a journey inside. Use the code PurplePatchPro20, that's PurplePatchPro20, and you get 20% off everything at the store. All right, it's a great one today. We welcome Lauren Fleshman. I hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and I get to welcome you to the first episode of 2023. It is our fifth season. Goodness me. It's been quite a journey so far. And so we thought to ourselves, how can we launch this real kickoff to the year, this celebratory first episode? How can we kick it off with something special? Well, guess what? We're delivering because today is well, it's a special one. It's a super one. We have a very special guest on today's show. It is Lauren Fleshman. Lauren is a former professional runner, elite running coach, and a thought leader around all aspects of sports performance and development. Now, I've known Lauren for a long time because I was lucky enough to coach her husband, Jesse Thomas, throughout the entirety of his professional triathlon career. That lasted 10 years. So, yep, yeah, as sort of families, we got to know each other pretty well. I was therefore so excited to welcome her after being fortunate enough to get my grubby hands on her new book, the title of the book, Good for a Girl. Folks, this book is important reading. It's written as an autobiographical memoir, and you don't need to be an athlete or runner to be very quickly pulled into the story. But as you start to learn what Lauren went through, the broader messages become more powerful. Because through her own story, Lauren displays the challenges that all female athletes face while competing in a sport that is designed by and ultimately for men. Honestly, this book, it blew me away. And in fact, it forced me to reflect on my own journey as a coach. And I think it will have a very similar stimulus for you. I really believe that this is required reading if you're a parent or a relative of a female athlete. If you're a coach, if you're a fan of the sport, or of course, if you're an athlete yourself. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Lauren to the show. And what emerged from our discussion, as you're just about to hear, was even more intriguing and powerful. I cannot have hoped for better. Yes, we go through the book and we discuss that, but very quickly, we transition on to try and get really applied for you folks, the listeners, athletes, parents, coaches, and beyond. You are going to enjoy this one. 
Now, remember, the book, it's out January 10th, and you can purchase it anywhere that you like to go shopping for all of your books. Of course, you can find Lauren as well at laurenfleshman.com, and I think it's really worth a follow. I proudly tell you, folks, this one is a special one. I think you're going to love it. It is time for the meat and potatoes. Yes, folks, it is the meat and potatoes. And as promised, as mentioned in the introduction, we have a goldie today, a great one. And I'm excited, Lauren, to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we have, we're excited. We're going to dig into the book a little bit. But uh, for for some of the audience that, that don't know, we've sort of lived in, in some bizarre way, sort of uh, a parallel life. Uh, we've had a different perspective anchored around uh, a person that's pretty central in our life. We've known each other for a long time, but I was lucky enough to coach your husband, Jesse, the second best athlete in your household <laughs> for 10 years, all the way through his professional career. So we sort of lived his athletic journey, and I have got to be a little bit of a voyeur through, through your journey for quite a long time now. That, yeah, it's true. Same. And I mean, um, as someone who is a coach myself, I uh, I never had to step in and intervene. You know, you always <laughs> <laughs> seem to have it all right. Not that I'd want to do that anyway, but um, yeah. I learned a lot from you via Jesse as well. So, yeah, it was. I'm really glad we have that history together. It's fun to be back in this context talking about women's sports and reflecting on coaching and athletes and all that stuff. We'll be good. Exactly. And and I hope that we can, I'm sure that we're going to dig into quite a few rabbit holes today, but what we are not talking about today, despite him uh, probably wanting us to do so, is Jesse. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about Good for a Girl, your book, and uh, a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. So if you're ready to dig in, should we do this Yeah, thing? let's dig in. Let's do it. Well, I'm going to start pretty high, pretty broad, and um, I want to pull out something from the introduction uh, that you wrote that captured my attention, which you you said that this was a love letter to a running life. And um, I know that writing any book is an endeavor. It's a journey. I also know that this was a real journey for you. Mm -hmm. And so I guess at the highest level, what was your motivation for putting pen to paper and uh, and creating Good for a Girl? Well, I, if I hadn't had as strong a motivation as I did, I certainly would have quit multiple times. Um but it truly is a love letter to the running life in that sports has completely revolutionized my life and that of millions of women. I mean, millions of people, you know, you oversee it uh, in a coaching capacity every day. But for my life is dramatically different than my mom's who didn't have a chance to play sports at all. And 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 so I'm very aware of all of the amazing good that sports participation can bring. And um, it's it was this feeling of this theme that I experienced throughout my life of the ways that it fell short of its promise um, due to very preventable, in my opinion, things um, like the obstacles, uh, frame, like mistaken frameworks of thinking about things around the female body, these things that when they're added up are stealing the joy and promise of sports, optimal gifts that it can give. And, um, and as I write also in the book that, you know, millions of women 
are carrying around these incredible memories from their time in sports, but they're also carrying the invisible wounds of their sport experiences. And, and I'd like to minimize the wounding and maximize the, the pleasure and benefits. And one, one of the things you talk about is sort of uh, your, your own personal experience of being an athlete, navigating a, an athlete. And you talked about uh, the, the structure of sports being sort of designed for boys, for men, by men. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the sports systems that we have today were designed as you said, by men, for men and boys. Um, women were excluded until pretty recent history, really. I mean, Title IX is just barely over 50 years old, um, which mm-hmm. federally mandated equal access for women and girls to sports in federally funded institutions like high schools and universities and things like that. And so it's fairly recent history. And while we fought very hard to get access to those spaces, we did not have any say in the creation of those spaces, of the design of those spaces. And there was an assumption that we, that female bodies and male bodies are the same, um, and therefore we should plug into what already exists. Uh, the male default norm is the definition of excellence in all the spaces that were created by men for men and boys. And, and so it, there can be this tension of entering those spaces, needing to adapt to the norms. But now that it's been 50 years since Title IX was passed, we actually have enough data to see that um, females and males are not thriving equally in these purportedly equal environments. And that's what my book explores, is what happens when you have a presumption of equality, you're placed into this space that isn't built for you, and you're kind of cramming a female body into a space that wasn't built for it. And there's these predictable friction points that come up over a woman's life from puberty onward um that is so uh clear once you once you see it that you can't unsee it and once you recognize the collective harm of all those friction points there can be the motivation to change it to reshape uh women's sport in the image of the female body and the needs and and design of the female um development wave and puberty and all those things so that we can thrive. Well, it's, it's funny because it, even hearing you speak, uh, I, I was really surprised when I began reading the book because as you sort of outlined that, as I entered the book and I opened up the first pages, what I was anticipating reading was some form of perspective from your experiences as, a, as an athlete, as a coach, as a thought leader, to, to lay out the landscape and say, this is it, and almost a manual of mm-hmm. sorts, like edging towards a, a textbook, if, uh, if you might want to say that. And within two pages, I was like, wow, this is so different than I anticipated, because what emerged was a deeply personal autobiographical memoir. And uh, d- d- did you always anticipate that you were going to start the book and, and complete it through that lens as something that's a, that's a memoir to try and get to that that end goal, that perspective? I did. I always knew that there would be a, a mix of narrative voice, um, expert voice, you know, which is connected to the research, and then soapbox voice, which is like that, how should I put this all together and what do I think should happen? I didn't know what percentages of each I would have, how it would shake out in the end, but I knew that the person, the memoir um, was an essential part of it because what changes hearts and minds on a deep level is story. 
the, a pulse to a real person. We're social creatures. That's how we're wired. We to to truly feel empathy and compassion, which is what motivates change. You need to be able to walk through the world in someone else's shoes, and that's why books are so powerful, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, is you you get to walk in someone else's shoes. You see the world differently after that. You're, you're changed. And so when it comes to like the issues in this book, there's actually plenty of scientific papers. There's still a massive gap in research on female athletes versus males. But for the issues that are, that are central to this book, there are current modern leaders producing incredible work and journalistic papers and all of that. Um, those aren't accessible to everyone. Right. They're in an academic circle. They're written in a particular restrictive way of language and style for academic writing. What I feel, I, I don't think that the, that incredible work can have its biggest impact until it's brought to life through story. And so what I felt I needed to do was take readers through my eyes, take them into the rooms that I have been, the things that I have either experienced or seen and so they can walk in my shoes with me and see how all the issues connect. Um, and then you have this full picture that can change a framework that can like raise consciousness in a different way than any short news story about an abused athlete can or an eating disorder blog could or a stress fracture analysis paper could, right? Or Red's research mm -hmm. could. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, I, I want to hone in on the word accessible there because I think that's, that's really important. Firstly, what you undertook, I, I want to underline, that is incredibly difficult to get right. Uh, and you, and you're probably saying to me, yeah, no shit, it was really, <laughs> yeah. it was really hard. Seriously, it nearly <laughs> killed me. It is so hard. <laughs> because story storytelling is 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 not an easy task, and and but accessible is also right, and I think that that that's really important as well. We spoke before, and I talked about this, where you know there are stories that are powerful and can capture our imagination and can rise us. And and the one that sprang to mind when I chatted to you before was. Laura Hillebrand's book, Unbroken, mm -hmm. that, that talks about the story of the US Italian runner, Louis Zambrini. And, you know, he was surviving in a life raft uh, after falling out of the sky in, in his plane, the Second World War, etc. And it's incredibly compelling. But I couldn't, you know, I, in awe of this guy's survival instincts, but I couldn't put myself in his position and really understand. And, and yet when I I think what you managed to do in, in Good for a Girl is create a memoir that was unmistakably and uniquely yours. Mm -hmm. But as I read it as a former collegiate athlete myself, I thought this could actually be a narrative or a story that any one of my female collegiate teammates could have told, like their own version, their own similar mm -hmm. story. And so it, it feels like this story, and, and I guess it's the intent of the book, but it goes well beyond you, or I would even say even running. Mm -hmm. I think it extends well beyond that. That was a goal. I, mean, I was really inspired. Like when I first started thinking about writing this book or writing a running book, I thought, man, mm -hmm. I would love it if I could write a running book that was sort of like how Seabiscuit was to me. Of like, I don't care about horse racing. I was never interested in horse racing, but horse racing was the mechanism by which we learn about the depression and the, the conquering of the human spirit and class and all these things. And um, I didn't develop in a, like a <laughs> attraction to horse racing after the book, but I was changed by the book. And I thought, wow, I'd love to read more run like a running book that, that can do that. 
And, um, and then of course, over time, there was a, a, a different, more specific purpose that needed to be accomplished with this book, which was to change, try to change women's sports in some way and change sports overall, uh, if I could in some way, but then I still at the heart of it wanted this book to be, to be a literary memoir that, that, extends beyond the circumstances itself. So it's it's nice to hear that you feel it did that. And it's a tricky thing to do. I think once you start adding in bits of research and data and soapbox voice, that could really distract from that. And so that's why getting the percentages just right of where will I insert research and for how long and never getting too far away from the pulse of the story. Um, and like, yeah, my athletic story is uniquely mine, but it's really just full of like, dreams, goals, failures, victories, redemption, grief, all of those things. It just happens to be through my running life. Yeah, it, it's it, another sort of thread that I want to tug on as well. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the power of words a little bit, uh, something that, that that is obviously discussed in the book. And you mentioned earlier the power of sports. And, and obviously, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that yeah. uh, the benefits of the sporting journey for for everyone and uh and so obviously was was engrossed by the empowerment of your own journey but i i, I found as i as i read good for a girl i i almost myself was conflicted i i felt like i i sort of paused and and found myself in reflection of my own actions my own words particularly as a coach i would say and um I want to tell you a story of, of words matter, and it, it, this one really slapped me in the face. So you know that I coach, had a, a, a very successful professional triathlon squad, 50% male, 50% female. I'm very proud of, uh, of my record of developing athletes mm -hmm. and, and having success, uh, at least uh, performance results in, in both men and, and, and uh, women, and that was, uh, that was fantastic for me. And I've had some fantastic relationships uh, out of that experience as a coach. But as I reflect, and, and this might seem like a small thing to the audience here, but amongst our female athletes, we never talked about periods at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, they what the athletes, but we were quite open with the dialogue around the fact that the athlete was having their period. But we had a code word and it was, or a code phrase, and that was that their friends were visiting. And it was just a very cute, fun mm -hmm. sort of insider code. And what I realized as, as I was reading this is it, 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 it's quite interesting. I actually fostered a mindset culturally amongst the group that created some form of tension or mystery, even extending potentially to shame to this thing that is perfectly normal and essential and part of being a really healthy athlete and in long-term performance. But I somehow as a coach inadvertently, subconsciously, unconsciously mystified this thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that's, that's just one small example of many issues where I thought, goodness me, I really could have done that better. Mm -hmm. Well, I had the same experience <laughs> writing the book of like, wow, I really screwed that up or wow, I really had that wrong at this stage of my life. And I tried to do my best to be honest about that along the way to model um, to model imperfection and the, the process of screwing up, learning, you know, what is it? No better, do better. Um, and, and that mm -hmm. is what's going to be required. I mean, I wrote this book 
there's lots of opportunities for people to feel uncomfortable or reflect on their words in the past or ways they've spoken to themselves or others about their bodies, about periods, about whatever it is, um, about excellence. I mean, there's just so many things. And I want people to think about their words because it, it, it does sound like a small thing when you pull one thing out, but it's the collection of those things over time that causes the most harm. And so much of the female athlete experience, because we were plugged into an existing male structure and success is defined by emulating the male experience as much as possible, right? Like running like the guys, competing like the guys, having the most um, steady performance trajectory possible, which is way more correlated with male testosterone and um, the development path of males. So we, we're already in this space. And so anything that deviates from that breast development periods, um, mood differences, emotionality, those things are not male and therefore have been sort of marginalized or made taboo or have euphemisms around them. Um, it's like finding an uncomfortable way to manage difference uh, in a sport culture that hasn't learned to embrace and celebrate sex-based difference. Um, and that's really nobody's fault. That's just the water we're in. That's the thing we've all inherited. And so, of course, all of us are replicating some of these things to some degree. Good on you for talking about periods at all, even if you weren't using the word. Um, as, that, as you know from the book, like I think it was 87% of female athletes in this study um, did not talk to their coaches about their period. And 80% of coaches in running at least are male. And I, I'm pretty sure that trend of mostly male coaches extends beyond running. So yeah, it's you're in good company. And, and it's also a great example for you to bring up in that you could easily read that part of the book and get defensive of like, Hey, okay, I'm doing my best here. I'm doing better than most people, half my yeah. squad are women. And I do talk about periods, at least some and whatever, but to be part of being a, a, like a good coach is always looking for ways that you can improve and being open-minded to, to new information. And so um, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I think it's a good modeling for how I hope other people read the book. Yeah, that, that, I, I want to dig into something you talked about there, um, which is less of the storytelling side. But I want to come back to the structure because I, I just want you to hold my hand down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. here for a yep. second. Because you talked about linear progression. And, and I think this is really interesting. And maybe we should just spend a couple of minutes on this where structurally, when you think about sports going through high school, for the upper end of, of athletes that are doing very successfully, maybe they go on and then compete in a sport in college and they go through. And and the the way that we tend to think about performance and we think is, is getting faster, 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 stronger, 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 better, 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 whatever you want to say, and it's relatively linear. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, uh, one of the things that you sort of really highlight in the book from a physiological normal standpoint is the train is going in, in a different direction for a developing female athlete that maybe gets into a sport when they're 11 or 12 and then goes through 13, 14, 15s and then 18, 19, mm -hmm. 20s. You, can you just very briefly sort of really tie the thread between linear progression expectations and what the female athlete is navigating yeah absolutely um the you know at 12 uh the, the research shows us that there are no sex-based differences in performance there are still some um 
some differences that can occur mostly from socialization. Uh, like less girls are encouraged to, for example, play or whatever. But there are female athletes that hold records in the 10, 11, 12 categories that are faster, better, higher, uh, stronger than their male peers. And the sex-based differences kick in when puberty creates two separate embodied experiences. And our sports systems are built around a 13 to 22-year-old. The, the sports systems we invest heavily in as a country in the United States mm. and beyond is 13 to 22. And that makes sense when you think about the male body, because the way male puberty works with testosterone and androgens is you, you receive this influx of hormones that is immediately beneficial to performance improvement. So you will like kind of, you think about just like the, the hormonal environment is such where you get more juice out of every squeeze than your female peers do during those years. Testosterone is a performance enhancing drug, right? It's illegal <laughs> to use. Yep. Um, and a lot of female athletes who've been popped for drugs, it's because they're using this male. I mean, women have testosterone in their bodies, of course, but they're yeah. using it to emulate, to mimic a male bodied experience, which to, to get a performance advantage. So this male idea of, okay, we're going to, high school is between 13 and 18 and whoever's the best at 17 and 18 years old is going to be rewarded with a scholarship to a university, which is a life changing incentive and reward. That makes sense for male puberty on average, 17 and 18 is a great age to kind of make these predictions about who's going to be the best at 18 to 22. Um, and for the female body, it's like completely not <laughs> predictable. Yeah. yeah because it's, it's literally going in the other direction. Is. Like at 17 <laughs> is the age when female athletes in the research, their performance, average performance improvement goes down to like 1.2%. And that's if you're, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's barely noticeable and that's the average. So there's plenty of female athletes who are going through a plateau, a total plateau, or even a dip. Those things are temporary, but our puberty environment creates body changes that are not immediately beneficial to performance when given a few years to adapt to them and build the ligaments and tendons and bone strength and all those things that can accommodate these changes, your a hundred percent, your best, strongest body will be your woman body. We just have this different wave. I call it a female performance wave of getting to the place where we're adjusted to it. And the problem is because this different physiological path is unacknowledged and the system is built on a male default, these differences in a female bodied experience are greeted as uh, cult like the culture around them is one of um, what a bummer, you know, uh, puberty is the one injury a girl can't come back from is, is a quote that mm -hmm. a, a coach has said, or many coaches have said it's viewed as like a career ender, which is a completely premature, um, conclusion. Right. And mm -hmm. so because it's not acknowledged, valued, educated on the girls themselves view it that way, they, they, it creates this war against your body during a time when something very exciting and monumental is occurring that deserves its own space and respect so that it can occur so that you can get to the other side and be in this strong, powerful woman body. And because we create this environment that is not hospitable to these changes, we, that's why we have um, 
eating disorders or just dis disordered eating in a subclinical level, um, amenorrhea, when you're not getting your menstrual cycle, you're, you're depriving your body of bone building, you're, you're actually like stealing from your future self and not allowing yourself to have like a joyful embodied present experience in your life. You're trying to be something else or you feel there's something wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with you. So that's like really what drives me in this book. You can see I get elevated because I think about like the harm is, is about so much more than stress fracture, increased stress fracture risk or eating disorders. All those things are very important. It's it, it like the thing that kills me the most is imagining millions of girls having a story about themselves that is simply untrue. And if they just had a slightly different environment that respected difference, they would be having a completely different experience in sport. Um, and, and, yeah. and therefore a better view of themselves, sport could work its magic on them as it's, as we know it can. Um, and, and, you know, you, you talked about stealing from the future self because that that's, and, and let's just generalize on age 16, 17, 18s, when the demand, I want to get, you know, on the upper end, I want to get the sports scholarship. Mm -hmm. So the demand is leaner, lighter, faster. But what's healthy and important for the athlete and appropriate from a physiological standpoint is to retain a little bit more fat yep. at that time. And, and, and so you can, it's very easy to see how corrosive behaviors driven by external forces and internal and everything else that's going around, that, that occurs. But the, the, if we can get female athletes through this chapter, this very normal chapter, and they emerge into the early middle 20s, that is when the future self can be the most resilient, the most strong, the most powerful. Absolutely. And, 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 but all of the behaviors set in stone in this chapter are absolutely, to your words, to steal your words, stealing from the future self. They really are. And, uh, they really are. It's it's remarkable when you think of it that way. Really, like the impact. Um, it's it's motivating for me to try to continue. Yeah. There's certain things you're not going to be able to change, right? We can't change when scholarships are awarded. That's always going to be a massive economic force, but it also only applies to a small percentage of people. What I do also tell in the story, though, is that what is the cost of going for that D1 scholarship if it requires harming your body in the short term where we have the research? Like you look at like the number of athletes who have won the Foot Locker national title, which is called something different now. There's a, like, I don't know, maybe only been one female athlete in the history of the event who's gone on to be like an NCAA champion. Whereas there's like mm -hmm. a, a, a much greater number of boys that have. It's It's like if you expose that information to girls of that age, I think that they're, if you can appeal to their longer term vision of, no, I don't want to just be good right now. Like, of course I want to be good right now too, but like not at the expense of being able to run later. Right. I, I want to be able to keep doing this. And, um, and so really like understanding there are lots of different ways to compete, to continue your athletic career at a college level and during college ages. And, and that, that, you that are like aligned with your long-term development. And I love telling those stories of the late bloomers who make Olympic teams that, that didn't really mm -hmm. accomplish a ton in high school and college that, that weren't these yeah. blue chippers. And that's so common on the women's side. 
Um, you just yeah. have to let yourself get there. And the last little nail on, on this piece as well is we're not ultimately just talking about the razor's edge of elite performance here. This goes to the, the, the actual purpose of what we are trying to get out of sports globally anyway. And it's not just world-class performance and sports scholarships. It goes so far beyond that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's important for us to remember. It's really important. I mean, the, one of the main reasons women fought for access to sports during the 70s and before was that sports is a place where women can use their bodies in a way that isn't sexualized. I mean, so much of our culture places value on a female body based on how it looks, how it appeals to straight white men or the dominant culture with the power, right? And so you you grow up as a woman li living with like a dual awareness from a very young age. How do I feel in my body doing this? And how does it look to the people that with power who are in general, like the male gaze? You learn to live with the male gaze always present and sport in theory can provide this arena where you can escape that you have these female spaces you are asked to use your body in ways that frankly like are pretty far from sexual <laughs> and look gritty and messy and sweaty and like and I, there's a scene in the book where i wrestle with after winning my first state title and i see my face on the front page of the sports section and it looks so different than what it felt like on the inside and I saw it through the male gaze. I, could, I didn't have the words for it at the time, but I saw it and I had this teeth gritted thing. It was decidedly unattractive, um, but it was, it was sport, you know, yeah. it was sport. And then how do you balance, how do you deal with that combination of feelings in a world that does clearly value women based on looking attractive? Um, it, it's like some, another element you have to wrestle with. With this, this show, I could go or go down that that pathway uh, for, for the next two hours, but uh, but I want to be efficient with your time. And uh, and th this this show is all about education. That's what it's anchored in. And and so what I what I hope to do in the last section is to try and get a little bit applied and draw some lessons out of this. And and I, I pause before sort of lining up the questions and thinking who are the who are the constituents of the, the book in many ways there's the athlete obviously uh the story told through your eyes there are the relationships that you have and we can categorize those all off with your parents uh relations teammates all highly influential on your mindset your mm -hmm. actions your perspective and then of course <laughs> me the coaches and so my hope is that in the last section, we can try and supply a little perspective and maybe an action per group. And so I want to start um, with um, parents first, because I think that's really helpful. A and if we want to extend going on to obviously this relates to friends, aunts, uncles, teammates, etc. Then we'll go into athletes and then we'll go into coaches to finish. Uh, so hopefully we can start to get a little applied. That here. sounds great. Here we go. All right. So um, let's think about parents. Throughout the book, it was a key driver, as I mentioned, of your of your mindset and actions. And uh, the relationships, I think, are so, so important. Can you offer your perspective now that you've 
sort of finish with your athletic journey and you finish with this book on the role and influence that we can have as parents or relatives in the journey of a female athlete? Yeah, um, there's so many things you can do. So it's going to be tough for me to narrow it down. But I think one, just kind of having the understanding of the things we've talked about so far, that there is a difference in a female embodied experience in sport during ages 13 to 22 and beyond really like, but it's a different journey. And that the Mm -hmm. default norm has been defining excellence based on a male norm and then determining how we feel about ourselves based on how well we did that or not. That's going to be what most of society is doing. And so what you can do as a loved one and influential person in, in this person's life is to to not do that, really, to bring awareness, educate them about it, um, normalize the a different, equally valid path, and stay excited about development and puberty and becoming the idea of becoming who you are going to be, and versus fearing what's going, what it will take away. Um, Mm. and I, I just think that's so critical that you, that you bring that point home and, um, and that the way, and then you also make space for the complicated, tricky feelings that this athlete is, is likely to have when the structure and scaffolding of the sports environments they're in is not predominantly telling them that, that they will need, they will watch, they will get passed by other teammates who are on a different puberty trajectory than them in that season, they will have a season where they work so much harder. And their coach has said, you get out what you put in effort equals results, but their lived experience is that they're working harder every day and they're not getting better that season, or they're even getting a little bit worse. And that hurts. That's hard. Getting your butt kicked by some random prepubescent freshman on the team that just started running. Like those things are difficult to to deal with and they're going to hurt. So holding space for those real feelings, making space for them. And, ju- and then when it, once they've regulated around that and feel heard, continuing to, to paint the large picture for them of, I'm so proud of you working through this. You keep showing up. That's the most important thing. Keep showing up through these difficult times, show up for yourself, show up for your teammates um, and, and ride this out, ride this performance wave out. I promise your strongest lifetime bodies on the other side and um and just helping i think another thing that you can do is focus on and matt you talk about this a lot like the athletic journey taking people on an athletic journey and you can be the voice that continues and start young start from when they first begin competing if they are that prepubescent freshman beating all the seniors you need to have this perspective too don't put spend too much energy focusing on how awesome their win was or how fast their time is, how they compare to other people, because that's not a sure thing that that will continue. Focus on the the bigger elements of the journey, their sportsmanship, their ability to like learn the, the skills and the um, execute race plans and be gritty and have tactics and those things. All of those elements can be consistently carried through their entire career, no matter where they are on their performance wave. And also correlated to their journey of life as well, of course. Absolutely. And, uh, it, it reminds me of your um, 
uh, back in the day, I'm, I'm sure they're still available, but I think it was your Believe journal where you, I think you talked about the, the spokes of a wheel and having the different components of focus, whether it's tactics, whether it's managing adversity, whether it's being a teammate components, of, uh, a broader spectrum rather than did you qualify? Did you win? Did you get faster? Yeah, well, that was the motivation to create that training diary was how can I create a way to track your training over the course of the year that keeps that has chapters each month that ground an athlete in this holistic perspective of what are all the various elements to see if you're improving you may not be improving as far as time or place goes this year but are you improving your your knowledge of nutrition and recovery and men, your mental game all these other things you can you can improve 10 out of 12 of them um, and it's unreasonable to improve 12 out of 12 at all times I, it, it, it. For, for for a listening parent or a, or loved one who's who really is driven, like I want to be a, a positive advocate, a supporter mm-hmm. of the female, particularly a younger female athlete. What can you can you identify? And this might be tricky to do, but the, the really key language or behaviour that they should aim to develop. And so we've talked about it. And, and what I'm thinking about here is I often talk to parents about the car ride home and how important that can be from a practice or from a competition, you know, from a race. Is is there some tactic or, or an element that you can really help? And I guess it's in, in language choice. Yeah. I, um, I think that one thing to avoid on the, on the negative side, avoid talking about athletes' bodies. Um, that is a, they're listening and, and pay attention to how you talk about your body. Uh, those mm-hmm. things are being internalized and uh, a, like a positive feeling about one's body that they move through the world in is just such a gift you can give somebody. And so as a parent, you may need to work out some of your crap, <laughs> like, let this motivate you <laughs> to work it out. Um, from the positive side, I think like, did you, sh- or you showed up, like, I really think just coming back to this idea, like, did you do the best you could with the tools you had on the day, on the day you got right? Like if you can do that, if you can get really good at doing that, your results may vary, but you are being consistent. You are consistently learning to do that in all circumstances. And sport, like you said earlier, gives you this practice arena for life. And you don't need to be perfect. You're not going to knock it out of the park every time. But that's the thing you come back to. Did you show up? Did you do your best? And if the athlete's like, no, not really. I kind of, I kind of phoned it in at Mm. two miles because I was discouraged. Well, that's a, good conversation you can have like well what was discouraging about it okay like let's talk about it because in the end the better you get it doing your best in all circumstances then when you get your good day when your good day shows up and everything clicks you're going to be able to take advantage of it you're going to seize it like like you've never done before well what what you mentioned there i phoned it in after two miles that's an opportunity for growth and suddenly you're engaged in solutions yeah it's like actually helping your, your, you know, your kid navigate this and mm-hmm. uh, we help in, in trying to find solutions That's a, across all of our... The phoning it in is a really common female athlete experience when their body is changing and they stop getting the positive feedback where when that, mm. when that refrigerator magnet wisdom of you get out what you put in starts to kind of like fall apart and then yeah. you lose your motivation. And so I think it's common to just like, I think a really helpful thing to talk to an athlete in that very likely scenario about is, well, how does it feel to do that? How do you feel now? How did it feel in that last mile once you made that decision? And any athlete, if you engage on that level, 
is just like, it feels bad. It feels gross. I don't like how this feels. And it feels so much worse than trying your best and having a poor performance. It's like, you kind of just don't like it. Um, And that's the motivator to get out of that. Uh, Not like, and no time is going to motivate somebody or place is going to motivate somebody to get out of that. Yep, 100%. How about teammates? Because you know, I, I, the mindset and actions is as as is the case. I think for almost every athlete, your yours was so heavily influenced by by friends, by teammates, by competitors. And so, how very broad question here, and, and maybe it, it's very line, but how can our audience be the best teammate to other female athletes? Well, well, for sure, similar to the parents, stop with the body talk. Um, don't point out when use language like uh, she looks so fit, uh, like valuing an mm-hmm. athlete's body type and equating what something looks like with what it can do is so damaging. It just worms its way in. And uh, and so we, we have to avoid that because body diversity within a body and among a team is going to be a huge part of the, the female athlete experience. We have to create like a very welcoming space for these changes to occur and for all all people around us experiencing these things. So I think um, we show up for each other. We expect there to be a performance wave at some point. Like it's not going to take us by surprise. And when it does, we are going to encourage each other through that time. We're going to work on improving the things that we can that are going well. And, And like if you're a team that shows up for each other through thick and thin, like that feels so good. You're building something so much bigger than yourself. And that is life. That's what you want to do in life. So we can do that as teammates. So I think um, also if you see a teammate that is struggling, that clearly is in a battle with their body um, and disordered eating, it's really important to develop language to talk about it. And one thing too that the research shows us is that the sooner you can intervene in an eating disorder, the likelier a person is to recover. And that's challenging in a running space because sometimes in the beginning of an eating disorder, an athlete is experiencing a short-term improvement wave and they're getting a lot of positive feedback from parents, from coaches. There's And the, the culture around performance makes everybody hesitate to intervene. It's also awkward. It's hard to know how to talk about it. Um, it feels very personal. But eating disorders are the deadliest mental disorder. Um, they have the highest mortality rate and the, the intervening quickly is essential. And then the thing to know is that I learned from Dr. Melody Moore, an eating disorder specialist and clinical psychologist was you don't uh, want to address it by pointing out their body. Like you look thin because mm-hmm. to the eating disorder, the eating do- disorder says they noticed it's working. That's like fuel for an eating disorder. So what you want to do is focus on the behaviors. Like I noticed that you're skipping meals. I noticed that when we're at a team dinner, you're bringing your own snack and it it, it isn't enough food. You're not fueling yourself properly. Or I noticed that you're becoming withdrawn and you seem like very fixated on, you know, uh, like something's weighing on you. Um, and then follow up with a question, like, how are you really doing? And sometimes that can be enough for someone to start to open up. Um, and then talk to a coach if you're concerned. And then, you know, beyond that coaches need to develop really a respect for how serious eating disorders are. 
So, but like as teammates, we need to be able to talk to each other about it and we need to know how dangerous they are. So we don't emulate the behavior because it, it can sort of spread socially through team environments. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Isn't, um, Let's shift our lens to the athlete yep. and uh, and let's talk about athlete themselves. And uh, I, I sort of, I kick this off as, uh, as you know, as a, as a formal male professional athlete, although I always talk about in podcasts that, uh, that I'm interviewed on, I'm a wonderful example of how to do a professional career very poorly. <laughs> but uh, I was one of the larger uh, athletes in the field and uh, I grossly overtrained relative and uh, with some, some, pressure from coaches as well I certainly under recovered I absolutely under ate uh, I think I was in red s or reds uh, however let's say and I, I drove myself into chronic fatigue mm-hmm. uh, which ironically was absolutely pivotal for me as a coach you know it, it sort of was the grounding for me to say every one of my athletes is going to have a platform of health I'm going to set up my methodology where I address my own mistakes and the address the mistakes that I saw and that was my sort of evolution into coaching but what your story did was highlight to me just how much tougher a similar journey is to take professional sport elite sport from a committed half athlete who just happens to be female and so now that you're on the other side of your running career what advice would you give to a young female athlete now who is going to navigate normal chapters of physiological development that all females go through in a mostly similar environment that you had to navigate, what would be your number one piece of advice? Um, I would say that how you feel about your body is way more important than what your body looks like. Um, And even just hearing your story, Matt, obviously you're a male athlete, but I think about how many of those behaviors you pointed out, the driving yourself into the ground, the overtraining, the under eating, all stemmed back to this, belief that your body was wrong for the job. You needed to change your body. And you just think about how powerful would it have been if somebody told you, wow, you have the perfect body for this. You actually like built for Mm. this as you are. Yeah. Even if you weren't (laughs) built for this, (laughs) if you believed you were built for this, how many injuries would you have avoided? How much better would you have been just from not missing any time from depriving yourself and getting injured or fighting it or being chronically fatigued or whatever it is, you would have reached whatever your potential was, you would have been more likely to have reached it. Right. And so I think like, that's what I would tell female athletes is don't, don't believe the um, myth that there is that fast looks a certain way that elite looks a certain way. Um, I think that's true for all athletes. I think it harms all athletes, but I think especially for female athletes, We have barely studied the female athlete body. What we have thought, all of our assumptions are based on a male body of what excellence looks like, what fast looks like, like as unfeminine as possible, removing all as much breast tissue and hip tissue and thigh tissue as possible to mimic this male form. But that is misguided. There's no evidence for that. Also, there's lots of evidence to the contrary that there is a greater diversity of bodies associated with excellence than we thought. If you look at the 1996 women's gymnastics team in the U.S. versus the 2021, all of the bodies in 2021 were larger, stronger, more muscular, 
had more body fat than the bodies of 1996, where the aspiration was a childlike body, an undeveloped female body that you need to turn yourself back in time or prevent the development into this woman body. And I love that example because the women of 2021 were outperforming the women of 1996. They were, they were more powerful doing like technically more difficult things and healthier overall as a team. Plus they were demonstrating personal agency, like mental health, valuing their mental health. It's just better overall. And then also to just think like in, in a running or endurance specific space, how many times have we watched an athlete win or place very high in a body that doesn't match this mythical ideal and said, wow, that's pretty good for a big girl. Like imagine what she could do if she lost some weight. These are the things that we hear when instead we could choose to look at those examples and go, wow, excellence looks a lot of different ways in a female body. We've, it's very possible that overall we will have a better, stronger career if we allow ourselves those extra couple percentages of body fat um, just purely phys physiologically, not to mention the mental load of constantly trying to like perfect some number on a scale or, or exactly how our inner thigh looks in the mirror. I mean, it's just like a huge distraction and I believe unnecessary. Yeah, that, that mental load, it, we can't overstate that in confidence of chasing something that is fabricated and the distraction around focusing of actually improving your technique or your tactics or, or, or being a better teammate, whatever it might be. And it, it's just a weight. Mm -hmm. It's an anchor. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's so powerful. And if that's converted and evolved to focusing on something that's productive, that's where the power comes from. Absolutely. Power, I'm like the power from within. Yeah, which is the absolute most powerful part of an athlete is when you're connected to yourself and to your inner power, you will do remarkable things. You will be your most powerful self. And we have to be vigilant about what are the things coming and stealing away from that. And the the story, the athlete story of my career beyond the 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 like research and whatever is a story of finding yourself in sport. Running helped me find that inner power, right? But then it's the forces around me were continually trying to take me away from that. So the story is one of finding myself, losing myself, finding myself, losing myself through the sport. And the world does that to us all the time. And so, but the times, like there's very specific examples of what we were just talking about where I was fit, I was killing it in workouts, but because of this fixation with my body that would creep in of what it looked like or what a scale should say, I sabotaged a performance. I lost an opportunity. I all, and that was crushing, especially once I gained the awareness that I was essentially doing that to myself by buying into this belief. And eventually I started to weigh, like, even if it is true, which I don't believe it is that that extra pound and a half or two pounds matters. Even if it's true, the pursuit of that is getting in the way of me actually just figuring out how good I can be or staying healthy. Like, and so what's the point? A hundred percent. So how about for the, the young athlete, if you could encourage them, you've got young Sally here and you say, these are the one or two or three, these are the commitments. Like this, this is what you are going to make a commitment for yourself as you take on this journey what would they be? What, what, what would the two or three actionable commitments they can be? And maybe it's educating yourself around something or 
building your resources, what can we what can we parlay to a, a female athlete? This is what you should do to help you to to build your your armor through this crazy world. Mm. Wow, yeah, that's uh, it's tough. Um, I think that focus on what your body can do for you versus what it looks like. Um, fiercely protect the your of view of self and fiercely protect your love of the sport to the degree where you're you can identify threats to that quickly because if you have a belief in yourself and you love who you are and you treat your body like a part of you not an enemy and you protect the joy of this sport you will you will redirect yourself back to those places every time there's a threat and by doing that you will have the best possible experience in sport, the best results possible on the aggregate, like all of that. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there is one, those are like two things, but I think also just going back to what we were talking about before that the, the objective is to, to show up and do the best you can with the tools you have on the day you get. And if you're doing that regularly, you're winning. That's what success looks like. The, I, I was going to say that the, the one other element I can think of is um, is understanding education Absolutely. as well. Like empowerment comes out of education. There is a blizzard of bullshit out there with everything in the world, quackery, quick fixes, hacks, etc. And the only way to navigate that is to have a very strong filter. And, um, and, and a lot of that comes with knowledge and understanding as well. Yeah. And so if you yourself with what is actually happening and likely going to happen and then what's the role of what you're putting in the body and what it facilitates everything from immune function to recovery and etc that can be really empowering as well yeah learning about nutrition not from a perspective of how to change your body but how to fuel yourself best how to be your strongest and healthiest and making sure you're not learning that from any diet resource um, that you're learning that from a sports dietitian, no nutritionists, I would say like start, get, start young people there and then uh, menstrual cycle learning that it, it's like, this is this thing that half the population has. And yet the myth that the basic, the, th the only thing people know about it is it's related to having babies. They don't understand that this is actually their brilliant, like incredibly designed symphony of hormones and body functions that comes around every month that is responsible for our immune function, our bone density, our, uh, our mood, our mental health, all these things. Like it's essential. Even if you have no interest in babies ever, this is how your body works because you were born female and you need to preserve that. Right. And understand that. I think when you have, when I viewed a menstrual cycle as a baby maker thing. It was easier for me to dismiss it. I'm like, well, I'm not really interested in babies and a period's kind of inconvenient. And eh, I lost it. Oops. Yep. <laughs> well, it, it, it's such a one. I love the symphony analogy. Uh, that, that really resonates with me. Yeah. Um, but that's why I wrote this book, Matt, was because there isn't a resource. Like <laughs> there, there are so many brilliant papers and things, but I wanted to make something that you could give a high school girl or a college girl or a woman who's already gone through these experiences to help them like, or to give them a way to re-reflect on them and see them yep. in a new way that kind of pulls all these things together. And I'm sure people will create better resources. 
um, that do the same thing. Um, but I, it, that's like, if I could have a dream or a goal from this, it would be to get it in as many hands of young people as possible. So at least that there, there will be very, a, a very unlike, it'll be unlikely that things will take them completely by surprise. Yeah. Well, uh, another group that we want to put it in the hands of as well, which is very important, is coaches. As I as I mentioned earlier, I read the book as a former athlete, but I think more importantly, a coach of female athletes and and male athletes. I'll add, but um, and 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 I'll preface this. Um, I, uh, one thing that that I reflect on, I'm quite, I'm quite proud of my own personal perspective and commitment to trying to facilitate performance off a platform of health globally. Yes, I, I, I you're really good at the, that. I think it's the right. Uh, my hope is that coaches look at success through that lens, mm -hmm. and, and that can be expressed in many different ways. Um, we've talked about the power and words. Uh, I, I want to try and help us educate coaches that I think this is required reading for coaches uh, of, of both genders. But how do you feel coaches can build a more constructive relationship with performance around topics such as female physiology, body composition, the much touted race weight, and, and other topics that are deemed sensitive. How, how should we go about building a better relationship with those subjects? Um, I think it starts with recognizing where these, quote, truths come from and, and a willingness to consider that they might not actually be the whole story or be applicable to female athletes or really the modern male athlete either. Um, and that if you're willing to kind of open your mind, that's like a huge, a huge thing. And I think most coaches are, I think most coaches are, are humble and are always in pursuit of what they can do better. Our, our athletes health and performance is like weigh on us. At least they have on me as a coach, mm -hmm. they weigh on me at night. Um, and, and so I think like there's been this false, uh, battle between what's good for someone's health and what's good for their performance that people like to play in of like, well, yeah, I don't know. Am I really giving an athlete good advice if it's a 17 year old female athlete who has gained weight and I'm not mentioning it? Like, am I really serving them as a coach? And yeah, the best thing you could do as a coach is to shut your mouth and not talk about the athlete's weight. It, it, that you you should not assume that you know anything about that athlete's biology, physiological development, ancestry, genetic pathway. It is there. This athlete is on a journey. What you can do is make sure that you stress the importance of fueling well, fueling the body, and getting a menstrual cycle. If if athletes are fueling their body well. Um, learning kind of sustainable tools around that and um, developing a good culture around balanced nutrition and meal timing and things like that. And, and they're getting their cycle, like you're setting them up for their best self over the long run. And that's excellent coaching. And I think judging yourself by how many athletes still love to run when they leave my program, how many of them are going to leave high school and seek out a club if they aren't at the level to be recruited or walk onto a team, how many of them will continue to do this for a lifetime? That's, that's your job really. Um, and then did I create a culture, a team culture where athletes felt like it was safe to change? It was a safe place where my body can change. My performance can change and I'm still seen. I'm valued. I'm still believed in. 
and that sounds simple, but that's what's really missing in a lot of programs. And I think it's accidental. I think it's like inadvertent on the part of a lot of coaches that think that they're helping by saying PRs are the thing that matters most versus, you know, that's one step is to say, yeah, direct an athlete's attention to comparing to themselves instead of to others. But, uh, but you need to recognize that the female athlete experience isn't success isn't always going to look like improving your own self, your own time each year. Like even that is a flawed, it's not enough for a female athlete um, environment. I hope that coaches listening sort of listen to the, that that last couple of minutes 10 times because uh, I don't think I can overstate the role. And um, you could say the burden, you can also say the opportunity, the privilege that as a, as a coach of younger athletes and particularly younger female athletes, you can be a catalyst of, a, of an absolutely wonderful foundation, both mentally and physically, for the journey of performance. At the same time, you you have unfortunately the, the opportunity to inflict really incredible damage. And um, I believe, like you, that the vast majority of coaches want to grow, want to improve, and want to be a positive influence. And so coaching for me goes well beyond training plans, uh, making people faster, et cetera. And if you can ground in purpose and you can develop a, a, a joy of the journey, embrace the journey, one of the purple patch sayings that we have, it is the rocket fuel that is going to take the athlete. And, and ultimately, those with the inner grit, love, determination and uh, will flourish. And, and some of those that flourish end up being really darn good as well. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you've done your job in a, in a different way. So Absolutely. That's well, that's very well said. Well, I, I think that's a wonderful place to to finish. It's uh, goodness me, we went deep on a lot of that stuff. Uh, my, my last thing that I just want to say in sam summary, as as I mentioned, as we kicked off the show, I've I've known you for a long time, and uh, and I want to be really honest in appraisal here because uh, I think it comes out with our discussion here. But this is an important piece of work, and and I know it was incredibly challenging for you. Uh, you had to thread the needle of all of the percentage of ratios that we talked about. But I think that you now have an opportunity yourself. And, and I think it goes well beyond anything that you probably could have imagined as an athlete or even as a coach. And, uh, and I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. And I'm excited. And, uh, and, and I hope that this can be a catalyst, one of the big catalysts for evolution and change. So congratulations. And uh, more importantly, thank you for this book. Oh, Lauren. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Matt. And I hope that anyone that picks up this book, that it is working hard on these changes and does care about these issues, feels validated by it and reinvigorated by it. It can be, it can feel frustrating to be up against such a nebulous, challenging subject. And so I, I, I really hope for that. And I think that the the ability to change sport to be a better environment for the future for female athletes and male athletes is going to depend on like basically everybody else at this point. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> elevate everybody's work that I possibly can and I'm going to be in the be in the rooms that I can be in, but this is something that we all have to do together and and so I hope that the book can just be a shot in the arm. Either it, it, it serves as an affirmation or it serves as a wake-up call or it serves as a an opportunity to reflect and and then it'll be what it'll be. 
We all have a role. We do. That's the uh, that's the way I think that's the the one thing that's important is this isn't someone else's challenge. We all have a role in this, and uh, and that's a good thing because many hands make light work. <laughs> that's, that's the, the truth. That's the truth. Well said. <laughs> So um, I think the magic day is January 10th, yeah? That's right, so, um, January 10th, wherever books are sold. Good for a girl. Uh, Lauren's website is uh, laurenfleshman.com. We will leave all of the details in the show notes, but really appreciate it, Lauren. And thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. Guys, thanks so much for joining and thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the new format. You can never miss an episode by simply subscribing. Head to the Purple Patch channel of YouTube and you will find it there and you could subscribe. Of course, I'd like to ask you if you will subscribe, also share it with your friends. And it's really helpful if you leave a nice positive review in the comments. Now, any questions that you have, let me know. Feel free to add a comment and I will try my best to respond and support you on your performance journey. And in fact, as we commence this video podcast experience, if you have any feedback at all, as mentioned earlier in the show, we would love your help in helping us to improve. Simply email us at info at purplepatchfitness.com or leave it in the comments of the show at the Purple Patch page and we will get you dialed in. We'd love constructive feedback. We are in a growth mindset, as we like to call it. And so feel free to share with your friends. But as I said, let's build this together. Let's make it something special. It's really fun. We're really trying hard to make it a special experience. And we want to welcome you into the Purple Patch community. With that, I hope you have a great week. Stay healthy. Have fun. Keep smiling, doing whatever you do. Take care.